0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. No matter where you are in the world, I'd like to welcome you back to another episode of Whose World Is This? with Junior Renee Beaubrun. Now, this is our second episode. We've gotten to a whole two episodes. I'm very excited about that. But I would suggest that if this is your first time tuning in, that you definitely go back and listen to our first episode, which is titled The Genesis. You'll get some insights as to my motivations for starting this platform, um, my uh, expectations for this platform as well, and you'll get an idea of where we may be headed into the future. If you do have any suggestions and concerns and comments all of that is welcomed and i would definitely uh, like you to email me at whoseworldisthis21 at gmail.com that t i t h i s two w-h-o-s-e-w-o-r-l-d-i-s-t-i-t-h-i-s-to-one at gmail.com our instagram is also whoseworldisthis2021 whoseworldisthis2021 instagram granted as of right now there aren't any pictures up or profile or bio or anything i just got it started but you know definitely follow there will be material there will be content up there shortly within the next week or so i should be putting things up there uh in any case today episode two is going to be titled new york state of Mine." now m-i-n-e now If you guys were to ask or you guys out there asking, why are we talking about New York and what do you mean by New York state of mind? Well, I'm born and raised in New York City, Uh, born and raised there, went to college there. I went to college in several places, but I graduated from college there, uh, University at St. John's University in Queens, New York. And um, growing up in New York City uh, informed a lot of who I am today, most of us out there. A lot of people out there you may be adults or preteens teens i've mentioned this before in the other uh, in the uh, first episode this is a family show this is a dinner table show you can listen to this with your eight-year-old in the car your 10-year-old your 18-year-old it doesn't matter you, three or four generations can listen to this and discuss these topics that uh that are brought up in any case if uh, most of you most likely are adults And if you're listening to this, a lot of who you are today was informed uh, by how you were raised. Right. And so New York had a lot to do with informing me about the world around me. Remember, the first episode we spoke about the Albert Einstein quote when he said the most important decision that one is going to make in their life is whether they live in a hostile or peaceful universe. So the universe that you know about was taught to you at an early age. I remember, I think it was Aristotle that said, if you give me a child up until the age of seven, I will show you the man or woman. It's very important. Aristotle is saying that at seven years old, if you if you allow me to rear a child from when they're born up until their seventh birthday, I will show you who that adult is. Now, he didn't have access to a lot of the childhood psychology data that exists today because there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of psychologists and science is showing us that between the ages of zero and seven years old, the human mind is in a state of theta and alpha, which is a hypnotic state. A state that we enter into when we're sleeping, when we're under hypnosis and when we're meditating. This is very interesting because that means that's when we're more easily programmed. And that's what's happening between the ages of zero and seven. You're in a meditative and, hypnos- and a hypnotic state. You're being told. You're given suggestions and commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. This is when you potty. This is, how, this is how you greet people. You say please. You say thank you. This is Mr. This is Mrs. Cross on the green, not in between. These are all the things you're learning. By the time you you, you reach the age of seven years old, A lot of your character is formed. How much have you learned by zero to seven? You've learned how to eat on your own. You've learned how to walk. You've learned how to talk. You've learned to a certain degree how to read. You can possibly know how to write your name. You know who your parents are. You know who loves you at that point and who doesn't. You know what love kind of feels like to a certain degree. You know what makes you sad, what makes you happy. You're able to articulate your feelings to a certain degree. I'm mad. I'm not happy. You know how to voice your frustrations. And to a certain degree, you know how to manipulate the people around you to get what you want. I mean, if I say this to mom, I may not get it. But if I say the same thing to dad, I may get a different reaction. If I do this, you learn and you adapt. Seven years old is a very important age. Now, you may be asking, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing up how we were, how we are taught at an early age and how our minds are formed. Because of uh, my upbringing in New York City, Uh, I was born and raised in Queens, New York. Now, New York, for many of you who are from there or who are not from there, I know you've heard New York uh, as described as the great melting pot, this melting pot. And what does this melting pot mean? It means all of these different people are together you know, in, in, in the city, in the island of New York City, and we're all living together or whatever the case may be, all these different cultures and languages being meshed together in this little tiny slit, you know, uh, uh, right here on the East Coast. But I was born in Queens, New York. So they call New York City one of the most, if not the most diverse city on earth, or at least in the U.S. But Queens, New York specifically is the most diverse city in the most diverse city on earth so why i'm bringing this up is because what's been going on recently the talk of diversity so who better to speak about diversity than someone from the most diverse city on the planet right and the reason why this is important is because i'd like to unpack just a little bit about what these, what these terms are, these terms of diversity and these terms of inclusion. And the reason why this is important is because I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a, a law school forum. I was thinking of going to law school and I attended a forum where there were over, I would say, 100 different law school representatives in attendance. Representatives of different law schools. They were they all had their booklets and they had tables and they had pamphlets and people were speaking and and things of that nature. And um, I was talking to different speaking to different deans and counselors about what they're looking for. And I came across one table and um, it was a school in New York, which will remain nameless. And there was a young lady. She had a name tag, had her name on the top. And on the bottom it said diversity officer. Never saw that before. This was 2019. I looked at it and I was like, hmm. So her and I we spoke. We didn't speak about that specifically. I asked about the school and whatever, whatever, and this, that, and the third, and you know, and and, and she seemed to want to make a point of telling me how diverse the campus is becoming and their commitment to diversity. And I personally wasn't interested. I was interested in the curriculum, and you know what are you doing for me as a student and things of that nature i 'm listening to her, and you know I got the information, and I went to another table and um, it was another new york school and this was an in, an inclusion officer i'm like, huh, and this inclusion officer is telling me about inclusive how inclusive this school is becoming, and how they have a commitment to inclusion. And I was like, great. uh, Can I see the curriculum? You know, may I see it? Whatever, whatever. And I'll never forget that because I walked out of that place and I smiled a little bit. And I thought to myself, why in the heck does a place like New York City, the most diverse city on earth, need inclusion officers? And diversity officers. New York is the most populous city in America. It has 8.6 million people in New York City. Los Angeles comes in second at 4 million and some change. So we have double the population of Los Angeles in New York City. And we have over 600 languages being spoken among that. million people making us not only diverse but also the most linguistically diverse region on the planet so with all of us being cramped up on the train together scrunched up underground bumping into each other every day and every night why is it that our academic institutions of higher learning need or see fit to uh, create these positions titled inclusion officer, where we need these uh, uh, people in place <laughs> telling us that we need more of a certain kind of people or different kinds of people. Shouldn't that just be by default? You would think, right? But that's not the case. I grew up in Queens, New York, the most diverse city and the most diverse city uh, on earth. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that with all of this diversity, New York is the most segregated and the New York is the most divided place I've ever visited or ever been in. I've lived in Hawaii. I've lived in other places and New York City. I've lived in in the South uh, and New York City in particular seems to be some sort of. Contradiction wrapped in a paradox or paradox wrapped in a contradiction. With all of this diversity, our neighborhoods and our school systems are regrettably not as diverse as our population would have you believe. As a matter of fact, several studies have come out and said that New York City public school system, which is the biggest, largest uh, public school system in America, is the most segregated. So how is it that we have the most diverse population on the planet, the most linguistically diverse population on the planet, and we have the most segregated school system in the United States of America? How did we pull that off? How could we, how could two of those, how could those two opposing ideas, polarizing ideas, polar opposite ideas, actually hold true simultaneously? And that goes to the history of not only this country, but New York specifically. It's very, very important. My neighborhood is considered a 95% black neighborhood. And I put black, underline it, and I italicize it. Why? Because I'm, I'm first generation black American. My parents are from the Caribbean, okay? Both of my parents are from Haiti. And so my neighborhood consisted of Caribbean black people from Haiti and Jamaica and Trinidad and other parts and Guyana other places like that and then consisted of black americans from the south and the midwest and native new yorkers who had been there for two or three generations and so but my neighborhood was considered black and then we also had neighboring neighborhoods that were considered white uh or and, and parts of queens you had the asian neighborhoods and flushing and other parts you had the hispanic neighborhoods and parts of corona and flushing and other places like that um but uh None of us really live together. We all go to separate school, public schools. My elementary school was 90 plus percent black. My high school was 90 plus percent black. Um, So why is it that I was able to have what I would consider a more diverse experience in New York than many of my black counterparts, or even some of my white counterparts and my Asian counterparts? Well, one of the reasons why was my mom. English is my third language or when I want to, I would like to say my 2.5 language, because I learned French as my first language and I learned Haitian Creole. as my second language. And I learned a little bit of Spanish. And the reason why my mom did this is because in her mind, her infinite wisdom. She said, I know he's going to learn English. He's going to, by default, he's born here. He has to go to school here. He's going to learn it. He's going to be immersed with, you know, all of these kids and and what have you, the television. He's going to learn English. It's going to be a little bit more difficult to teach him these other languages later on in life. So I would rather him know these other languages first before he becomes inundated by the English language, which is going to be the language of the predominant culture that he's in. Very interesting. Seems like mom was using an Aristotelian uh, um, uh, method, knowing that. Give me the child from ages zero to seven. Right. And I'll show you the man. So I learned French, Haitian Creole and some Spanish before the age of six. At five years old, I really didn't speak any English. It wasn't until five and a half, six years old, seven, eight, that I really started understanding the English language and and excelled at it. But you know what that did for me? When I heard people speaking a different language in Queens, it piqued my curiosity. I wasn't apprehensive. So if I heard someone, if we were walking down a hillside avenue, which I consider the most diverse avenue I've ever been on because you can get Uh, Food from an Indian restaurant, a a Jewish bakery, a Muslim butcher shop, halal. You can go get jerk chicken or or a, a Dominican bodega. Anything you really need, you can find on Hillside Avenue and also Jamaica Avenue, which ran parallel. So every time I was walking around with my mom holding my mother's hand and I would hear someone speaking Hindi, hear someone speaking Urdu... Or Arabic or Jamaican patois my curiosity was piqued I wanted to figure out what region they were from like oh I wonder if they're from because he speaks differently than that person so I'm wondering if my curiosity was piqued why because I was informed through my mom teaching me these different languages through reading French books through watching French movies Through listening to French music and and Haitian music and different Caribbean music and then English and American music, what I learned was these differences that people like to call them were for me just ingredients. That's all it was. It was just it was it was like I was it was my intellectual and experiential plate. You have your salad, you have your main course, your appetizer, you have your dessert, and that's all it was for me. It was extremely normal. For me to be surrounded by all of these different languages, because as a child, I was surrounded by these different languages and it was normalized. My mom never had to tell me to accept people of a different uh, ethnicity or or language or this, that and a third. I didn't I didn't need we never had that talk. We never needed to because of how I was raised in the home. But if it wasn't for that home. I would have needed someone like my mom to teach me about the world because I didn't see the world, how it was represented in New York city in my neighborhood. My neighborhood was monochromatic. My school was monochromatic. Everyone was the same color in my neighborhood, same color in my schools up until my 18th birthday, when I decided to go to school or when I was at jobs and different jobs, was I surrounded by other kinds of people. But, Early on in my teens, I was able to surround myself or at least explore different neighborhoods and different kinds of people because of how I was raised. So it goes back to that diversity and inclusion officer. Now, remember, this is a law school forum. The average age of a law student is about 25 years old. Let's think about that. Most of us are going to live to see our 75th birthday. So you know what that means? That 25 year old has already lived a third of their life. A third of their life. Now, if our public school system is the most segregated school system in the country, and with all of this diversity, we have some of the most segregated neighborhoods in the United States. And if we're being truly being informed about the world, and theta and alpha programmed between the ages of zero to seven. What is a diversity officer, an inclusion officer going to do for someone who's already lived a quarter of a century on the planet? That's the question. Remember what we spoke about in our first episode. This show is not about answering questions. It's about posing questions and asking the difficult questions, the provocative questions. I don't have all the answers. I may have an answer to some of these questions, but I want you to answer them for yourself. If you've spent your whole life in a monochromatic, homogeneous environment where everyone looked like you, Everyone spoke like you Uh, and then the people in your life and the authority figures in your life were telling you about other people without you actually experiencing those other people. And what you were being told, the people that were telling you this didn't even have experiences of their own because they were even more hyper segregated than you. So they don't even know what they're speaking of from an experiential basis. Remember, experience is what breeds wisdom. That's what breeds wisdom. They're not wise to this subject. You're being informed, but what's really happening is oftentimes you're being misinformed. You can only know people by knowing people. You can only study people by being around people. You don't study them from data. You don't study them from anecdotes. You don't study them from rumors. You study people and you, by being around people, by asking people questions, by hanging out with people. How many birthday parties have you attended? people of different cultures and races how many sleepovers have you had how many of them were your teammates how many times did you go over their house to play video games and watch tv and watch cartoons if the answer is none zero to one then you don't know what you're talking about and if you ask your parents how many times did you have sleepovers and barbecues and things with people from different races and cultures at your house none then you don't know what you're talking about either you don't know listen to that word you do not know for sure, what you are talking about. That's why I had, I felt that I had an issue with that diversity officer title and this inclusion officer title. Because I'm asking myself, what are we doing between the ages of zero to seven? What are we doing about these neighborhoods? How did these neighborhoods in the most diverse city on the planet, how did we even get to this point? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get back to that but i'd like to like you guys out there even us new yorkers we don't really know how new york became new york as it is right now and it's very important um because new york is what new york is just a microcosm of a lot of other uh uh, policies how new york is set up i would love for you guys to read a book this book is from robert Carroll. c-a-r-o He's a world-renowned researcher and biographer, and he wrote a book called The Power Broker. It's a big read, a lot of pages, big book. It's, uh, it's, uh, It's almost a weapon, it's so big. But he wrote this book about a man named Robert Moses. Now, Robert Moses is as responsible for how New York is today As any one person could be. Now, this book was written, I think, in the 70s. This man, uh, Robert Moses, was ruling over the urban planning of New York City back in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. But the reason why New York is what it is in twenty twenty one we can date it back to Robert Moses now now let 's think about this for a minute let's let 's take a moment and think about what the thirties were like in the United States we 're going to speak about Robert Moses and we 're going to speak about what was going on in the United States. What did we have? We had the Great Depression, okay Great Depression is occurring. America's pretty much bankrupt. We can go into later why it was bankrupt, but it 's bankrupt. We have Franklin Delano Roosevelt as president. FDR is president. And a lot of states are scrambling to try to figure out a way to do what? They're trying to figure out a way to feed their uh, state citizens. They don't have a way. They don't have any public projects and things like that and you know, whatever to do. They don't know what to do. They're scrambling. So, FDR. In his wisdom, he says, you know what? If the banks and the private sector isn't going to hire anyone, I'm going to hire people. The government is going to put you to work. So America went through its largest public works phase, public works project that it ever did. But a lot of these states didn't have a lot of public works projects on the books that were ready to go or what they called shovel ready, ready to go. But Robert Moses did robert moses had a lot of projects in his mind that he wanted to get off of the ground now this is very interesting how robert moses saw the world remember what we spoke about hostile or peaceful universe that's the decision that we are making and that decision is a very powerful decision because it informs ourselves of the world and it informs our actions we Act on that information on how we inform ourselves about this hostile and peaceful universe. Robert Moses loved the automobile, absolutely loved it. He thought the automobile was going to set America free. He was like, with the advent of the automobile, we need expressways. We didn't have a lot of highways. There wasn't any I-95 where you could take straight down from Boston or Maine all the way down to South Florida. There wasn't any of that. A lot of America was still dirt roads. Very few interstate, very few highways. The automobile was forcing America to reinvent itself, to make room for the automobile and all that that entailed. Now, a couple of things were going on. Remember, this is New York City. This is the banking headquarters of the United States. You have Wall Street, you have the banking sector, you have the Rockefellers, you have JP Morgans, you have all of them. And all of these men have homes on Long Island, which is a part of New York City. It's east of Queens, okay? All of them had mini mansions, big mansions, estates, castles even. Some of them still are around out on Long Island. He wanted to make sure that one of the first highways was a highway that can take these men and these robber barons and these captains of industry from Long Island to Manhattan without hassle, which right now is about a 35 minute drive. But back then it was probably an hour and some change, if not more. He wanted that. That's what he wanted. And he wanted these robber barons to be able to get back and forth and visit each other on Long Island. So all of a sudden, L- Long Island went from being just bushes and and, and, and trees and brush to having the Meadowbrook Ex- Expressway and the Southern State Parkway and the Robert Moses Parkway and this, that, and the third. He loved the automobile. He saw it as a way for the wealthy and propertied and middle-class white person to enjoy life. He built jones beach he created jones beach he helped build 255 playgrounds all throughout new york but guess what only two of those playgrounds were in neighborhoods that were predominantly black he built swimming public swimming pools he made sure only one of them were in a neighborhood that was black and all the other swimming pools were in neighborhoods that were white if you don't know America was pretty segregated back in the 30s. Even New York, us New Yorkers, we like to look at ourselves as if we are the enlightened north and the backward racism that goes on in the south doesn't happen where we live. I would be the first to tell you that that is not the truth. That is actually a fallacy and an inaccuracy. Okay, so 255 playgrounds built in uh, white neighborhoods or neighborhoods that he wanted to be whiter. Then the buses and the trains and things of that nature that were coming about in the 40s and the 50s, he started to build bridges. He would expedite the building of bridges to make sure that the bridge was so low that buses couldn't travel under them because he thought that black and brown people, black and Hispanic people, In New York City would never have the kind of money to afford cars he said most of them are gonna travel by public transportation so if they're gonna travel by public transportation I don't want them to be able to have access to these other neighborhoods so I'm going to build bridges that these buses can't go to that's why the MTA or the mass transit authority in New York City doesn't go into Long Island The trains don't go to Long Island. They stop in Queens. Robert Moses has a lot to do with that. If he wanted, he could have had the train lines extend all the way to Montauk, Long Island. He did not want that. He wanted to preserve Long Island for the robber barons and the upwardly mobile white people. That's what he wanted. And now I remember there was a neighborhood It was called Stuyvesant Town because here's the thing about the Great Depression the government, FDR, he creates this public works program. He's the men uh, that were unemployed. He sent them off to work. But the other men, because we're in the middle of a war, World War II, he sent them off to war. And then the women got to work in the factories, you know, building, you know, munitions and sewing soldiers uniforms and things of that nature. So that's what it was. But at the same time, when these soldiers are coming home, there aren't a lot of jobs. We're still in sort of a depression every stage. So then you have the VA loans and the GI bills. So the GI bill is like, okay, wait a minute. You don't have a job, but uh, go to school for free on our dime, on the government's dime. And maybe by the time they come out of school, uh, there'll be jobs. So a lot of soldiers who came home from World War II were able to go to law school, medical school, engineering school, accounting school, for free on the GI bill, okay? VA loans, veterans assistant loans, they were able to get those loans, or veterans administration loans, they were able to get those loans. Why? Because uh, they were soldiers and they were able to get loans that had zero interest rates and zero money down and 0% interest rates. But guess what happened? Stuyvesant Town was a town in Manhattan that a lot of World War II veterans were able to buy homes, but Robert Moses opposed the black veterans getting homes in those neighborhoods. So the VA, VA loans and the GI Bill uh, was sort of uh, uh, not available to a certain degree for 1.2 million black veterans coming home. So the same people that fought in the war. When the, when the black people that fought in the war, those black men that fought in the war bravely and came home thinking they were going to take advantage of the GI Bill and the VA loans and, and things of that nature, didn't really get an opportunity to do that. Then you had the Federal Housing Authority that every time a black person was trying to fill out a loan, it, it turned into a, a D-loan. They called it a D-rated loan. And they would say, OK, we're going to we're going to allow you to get a loan, but only in these kind of neighborhoods and they would redline the neighborhoods. They called it redlining. This is where you're going to give this kind of people a loan, and this is where they get to go, and we call it redlining. Ironically, today, those same neighborhoods that were redlined and underfunded and turned into ghettos, planned ghettos, are now the very same neighborhoods that are being gentrified in New York City right now. This whole talk of gentrification and how it's the same people that you relegated to uh, the ghetto and you underfunded and and, 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 uh, undersupervised and did not care about. Now, all of a sudden, you care about it because you can buy something there at bottom dollar. And the real estate developers have come back now to claim the ghetto and turn it into uh, a haven for uh, professionals and things of that nature and entrepreneurs. So when you look at New York in 2021, you got to go back to 1931, 1941, 1951. You got to go back and look at uh, a town in Long Island called, uh, what's it called? Levittown, which is 20 minutes away from where I was born and grew up. Levittown in Long Island, which is considered the first American suburb planned suburb I think the man was name was Walter Levitt or, or something along those lines, but I remember there was a, a, a Sign a, there was a covenant a promise that was made amongst all the residents of Levittown And it went as follows the tenant agrees not to permit the premises to be used or occupied by any person other than members of the Caucasian race But the employment and maintenance of other than Caucasian domestic servants shall be permitted. Translation, you do not rent and you do not sell your home to someone who is not white. But if you have a servant that is not white, we are okay with that. Ironically, Bill O'Reilly, former host of uh, the O'Reilly Report on Fox News or whatever it was called. He's from Levittown long island so when i hear you know people speak about diversity and things like that and pulling each other up by their bootstraps in america and that's what america was based on i you know i say well you know there may be some truths to that but there also there there are certain uh real facts that are left out of that uh that equation so here we are 2021 schools are the most divided neighborhoods are so divided Public transportation underfunded. MTA, the trains are old, uh, the homeless sleep on trains, uh, a, a city that's overrun with rats and things of that nature, congestion, uh, the traffic. And then here I am at a law school forum in a city where everyone is in, everyone is available. Everyone is there. I can see everyone. But yet you're telling me you need an inclusion officer to include people in a diversity officer. So by definition, and we're going to look it up together, the layman definition of diversity is what the practice or quality of including or involving people from a range of different social and ethnic backgrounds and of different genders, sexual orientations. Let's read that again. The practice of including or involving people from a range of different social and ethnic backgrounds and different genders, including and involving them. So I'm including your race. I'm including your ethnicity. I'm including your gender. What's missing there? Question mark. Remember, we ask questions on this show. What's missing? Social and ethnic backgrounds are included. Genders are included sexual orientations are included. What's missing? I'll tell you what's missing. It doesn't say including ideas. See, that's what's missing from this diversity conversation. That's the key term that's missing, is the range of different social and ethnic backgrounds but does that mean that you want to include my ideas that was the thing when i was a kid and you spoke a different language i wanted to know everything about you i wanted to know what you guys ate uh what do you guys believe what do you guys like or dislike What's going on with you? And I didn't see someone from a different culture and assume that that person was the, the whole representation of that culture. I knew even as a kid, instinctively, that this was one person. And then if I would meet another person from that culture, I would say, hey, I met someone from your culture that said they like this, that and the third. How about you? It wasn't as if I felt at that moment I met one representative and that representative represented the whole So guess what? What happens now when you decide to include a black person into your organization? Does that mean you're including all of their ideas? Or do you want them to walk in lockstep with the ideas that are already in place? What happens when you involve a brown person, a woman, an Asian, someone from a a Muslim, someone who's a Hindu? Are you saying, I want you to look different, but I don't want you to think different? or have any different ideas. The reason why I say that is because I remember there was a reporter, I think he he worked for a a major newspaper on the East Coast, and he was a reporter for about 10 years, Jewish American, and he said, um, his newspaper really wanted black reporters to be in the newsroom, but the pushback occurred when those black reporters decided to speak their mind and have ideas. So what they really wanted, what the editors and the owners really wanted was black faces that had the same old ideas as everyone else, the status quo ideas. So this is why if you go online and you do your research, you will hear a term being bandied about. And it, that term or that phrase is called is a, a the illusion of inclusion, because there are a lot of black and brown people, women of different colors, people of different racial backgrounds or uh, or, um, cultures and nationalities that are saying, yeah, when they hired me, I thought they were hiring all of me, but it seems as if they just wanted things to look different and not be different. So what I'm asking is, what do we really want when we use the term diversity and inclusion? Is this diversity and inclusion mandate such as it is? Is it only skin deep? Hmm? Is it only photo op deep? Is it only press release deep to look as if you're being progressive? Look, I hired a woman of color. Look at us, pat ourselves on the back. I hired a a man of color. I, I hired the first such and such. Look at us, but what does that mean exactly? Do you want to hear that person in their totality? Do you want to hear their ideas? Do you want it to be experiential or not? So that's something that I want to discuss maybe later on, maybe in another episode further on down the line. Because there's also another thing to this that I want to speak about. I don't want people, I don't want white males or white females shamed for being blind at 40, 50 years old. This is what I mean by that. If there isn't enough diversity in your office, think about how we were all brought up. Remember what we spoke about earlier. Think about how that white person was informed. They were living in a glass Bubble or a vacuum where everyone looked like them Everyone spoke like them when they read their history books in school Which I like to call mystery books because our history books miss so much of who? Was integral in the creation of so much of our civilizations all across the world And so our history books are missing the point. They're really mystery books. So who's informing them about other people? Take New York City, for instance. If I'm a white kid and I grew up in a neighborhood and it's 95% white, my my elementary school is 95% white, my middle school is 95% white, my high school is 95% white, and guess what? By the time I turn 18, then you send me off to a college where I may or may not mingle with people or explore— Explore the differences in all of us or I may join organizations that look like and act like where I came from Remember zero to seven I've been informed about a particular world my whole life and now all of a sudden at age 18 or age 25 or age 30 and now I'm in the workplace and I get hired and now all of a sudden you want me to what You want me to now hire someone that looks different than me? And um, when I've been told so much about this group of people, I didn't have access to them. My family didn't allow me to have access to them. They told me about this hostile universe that was away or apart from how we lived. Remember. That's the decision we're making, whether we live in a hostile or peaceful universe. This child is being told that the universe that they're brought up in is the peaceful universe and where those other people and those other people are hostile and they live in a hostile universe. So now all of a sudden this person goes through school, graduates college, becomes someone who has the power of the pen to hire and fire. Why would they hire you, Mr. or Miss Different? Why would they hire you of a different culture, different ethnicity, a different race? Why? Why would they? After all they've been told and how their universe was informed. So this idea of diversity and what it is and inclusion. What are we including? Is this diversity experiment in America 2021 just skin deep is what I want to know. Or are we looking for new ideas from everyone? And... You know, uh, when you do hire that one black person, are you are you saying now I just need to know what you think? Uh, because you're going to represent the whole black male race or the black female or you're going to represent the whole black female or, or the Latina or Latino. I'm going to get your opinion and your opinion now is going to stand as holy writ for everyone who looks like you and comes from your background is that what you're doing or are you really looking to explore different ideas so you can have a richer deeper more experiential and wiser experience on this planet and in these cities across the country so i'd like your uh, take on that you guys we're going to speak about that later so this is going to conclude our episode two new york state of mind Whose World Is This? podcast with your host, Junia Bobrun. Good night and speak to you next time.